Thanks for checking out the Awaken Church podcast. Awaken Church messages are brought to you by our generous givers and partners. You can always learn more about the vision or get financially to support the work God is doing here at Awaken by visiting our website, awakenchurch.cc. If you can't make one of our weekly worship services, you can always watch online by going to our website and clicking on the watch tab. And now, wherever you're joining us from, thanks for listening, and we hope this message encourages you. Hey, the the Bible says that those who plant themselves in the house of the Lord will flourish like the cedars of Lebanon. I'm praying that over the men today who made it to church. And the ones who aren't, that are out on the boat today, that they would be like the weeds that just get burned up and fall away. It's going to happen, I'm telling you. Hey, uh, I want to preach a word today about a man's man named Paul. Uh, out of Acts chapter 9, a, a man that all of us would do well to look at and try to emulate and try to be like, uh, a man that is definitely was used in a mighty way by God to write over half the New Testament, uh, planted churches all over, and, um, but there was a life before that where he was named Saul. He had a past, he had a history, he had some stuff that uh, he was not proud of, but that God would use. Uh, once he gave his life to Jesus. And so I want to talk a little bit about Paul because I feel like for the men in the room, you may be able to identify with some of his story. If you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 9 together. We've been in a series called Plus One where uh, we're looking at how God uses average, everyday people like me and you uh, to share his gospel good news with those who don't know it. And we've been looking through the book of Acts, personal encounters where God used people to reach people and that's because that's honestly how uh, the gospel has gone forward all through history. Amen. Uh, it's just been people like me and you sharing the story, lives being changed one at a time. Acts chapter nine. Let's read this together. Verse one. We find, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. You know, one of the most beautiful things about having concrete floors in the church is that when you spill a Yeti, we all get to hear it. Amen. <laughs> Let's run it back. Y'all want to start it over? We got spiritual warfare in the house. Better pray over that Yeti. Amen. If you're new here, we're glad you're here today. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. Followers of the way, that's Christians. That's people following the way of Jesus. Verse three. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus and he remained there blind for three days and he did not eat or drink. Saul was on a mission to kill the church, and on his mission, he met Jesus face to face. I read a story this past week. It's Father's Day, and it was a story about men who have changed the world. Obviously, that's a long list, uh, but 
this particular article pointed to one man named Alfred. And uh, Alfred was born in the 1800s, a Swedish family, and he was born into an incredibly impoverished family. Uh, but he was brilliant from a young age. He just had this, this intellect, um, and he would go on to be very educated, became a chemist, and in his adult life, he developed tons of patents. And one of the patents that he developed was for dynamite. Uh, it's obviously used to blow mountains away and pave the way for roads, used to bring buildings down that need to be demolished. But one of the things that dynamite began being used for was obviously warfare. And so as, as an adult man, uh, Alfred made a ton of money selling dynamite, this patent, selling dynamite to countries that used it for war. And I don't need to educate you on this. Lots of people lost their lives because of this dynamite that Alfred invented. And something happened one day. Uh, he was reading the newspaper. His brother had passed away. His brother uh, named Ludwig, which is a great name, by the way. Uh, in 1888, his brother passed away. And he opened up the newspaper and was reading the obituary section of the newspaper. And he found that the newspaper actually published wrong enlisted him as the brother who had passed away. And as he's reading this, what it said in his obituary, which none of us will get the chance to read our own obituaries, as he read his obituary, it read, for the merchant of death is finally dead. And he read this and he thought to himself, this is my legacy. This is what people are going to say about me. This is what I'll be remembered as. Like, no, 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 you got it wrong. First of all, I'm alive. Like, that's, my brother passed away. But as he read it, he was disillusioned thinking that's what he will forever be known for is being the merchant of death. And so he set out on a mission to change his legacy based on what he experienced. And Alfred would go on to set up a trust where he gave his entire wealth, $31 million at the time, which in today's economy would be billions. He donated his entire wealth to establish a fund that we now know as the Nobel Peace Prize. And Alfred Nobel decided, I don't want to be known as someone who endorsed or um, created for himself this merchant of death reputation. I want to be known for someone that's advocating peace. Uh, because they used my invention, they used my dynamite for negative things. I want to use my wealth for good. And he changed, he was able to change his legacy. And we think about the Nobel Peace Prize today. People who have won the Nobel Peace Prize right? Like Barack Obama and Martin Luther King, and the list goes on. People who have literally changed the world for good. I think about a man who at one point got the opportunity to see, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. Saul in Acts chapter 9 gets the opportunity, a man who is advocating for and passionately killing the church, he gets an opportunity to change his legacy, and it happens through the work of Jesus Christ. And for the spiritual, for the Christian person in the room, I want you to hear me say this. We have a chance, and I, specifically to the men in the room. This applies to women, but I want to talk to the men real quick. I think a lot of men look at your life and you go, hey, I've done some things, I've been some places, maybe I didn't meet the expectations that were set for me. Can I just remind you today that we serve a God of second chances? And that whatever you've done is not permanent and it's not set in concrete. you got opportunity to change the game. And, and maybe today it's just a glimpse into the story of a man named Saul. You get a snapshot of a picture of what could be if you'll just surrender your life to Jesus. Right? That's what I want to invite you into today. 
through this story because Saul in this moment meets Jesus face to face and everything begins to change. Now, here's some context on who we're talking about. Saul, Paul, same person. Saul before Jesus, Paul after Jesus. His name was changed. Saul in his background, Saul grew up a Roman citizen of Jewish descent. What that meant was he was raised in the Jewish faith, raised to observe the Old Testament law, uh, but he was a Roman citizen, so he was very powerful. His family had wealth, his family had prestige, and so Paul was, or I'm sorry, Saul was in this place where um, he was not into worlds. He basically represented a Jew that had privilege. Uh, he was well-traveled. He was well-versed in the culture. He was actually what's called a Hellenistic Jew, which means that, that his family would have been involved in the arts and in sports and in theater and in music, whereas a lot of Jewish people wouldn't have. I want you to see this man that was well-rounded in terms of his upbringing, incredibly intelligent, We find out later in his writings that he studied, he was sent to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the head of the Sanhedrin, like he was the head of the Pharisees. This guy would have known all the scriptures. This was like the Ivy League of the Jewish faith. Saul was brilliant, he was powerful, he was well-educated, he was very enculturated. That's who we have here, and in Acts chapter 9, his job, what he had given his life to, literally, Luke tells us, every breath was committed to killing the church. If I can just stop the church. But here's what I want us to see today. God loved this man. He he loved this man and he had a plan for Saul's life. Now what's crazy is we look at Saul and we go, how in the world could God love him? Here's a a newsflash. You You know God doesn't love you any more today than he did five years ago. He doesn't love you any more today than he will five years from now. Some of you are in the room and you don't even know Jesus yet. God loves you right now. In fact, in his love, he brought you into this room today. Some of you have known Jesus for two decades. He doesn't love you any more today than he did when you didn't know him, right? Because God's love is unconditional. It's not based on us. We don't earn it because if we could earn it, we'd also lose it, right? Saul is right here. God loves him and makes a decision. I'm going after him because I love him. In fact, it would be uh, this same man later would write these exact words out of Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Paul would later write to the church at Rome. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a challenge to us as a church, to every single one of us. When we look at people out there who don't yet know Jesus, let's pray that God gives us a heart of love toward them, not condemnation, not judgment, not despair, not, oh, I wish they would change or when they come to church, then I'll love them. But as they are right now, God, help me love people that may be unlovable. See, Saul was lost. This man... He was doing everything he thought was right. This is important. He was raised, right, to believe that they were waiting on the Messiah. In his Jewish faith, Jesus was not the Messiah. So they were still waiting on the Messiah. Now, he had heard about a man named Jesus that claimed to be the Son of God, but who was also killed on a cross. He probably, most probably, Saul stood and watched Jesus hang on a cross. We know that Saul, in in Acts chapter 7, stood at the feet of a man named Stephen. Stephen was a a disciple. Stephen was preaching. 
And he was preaching in such a way that it offended a mob. And they got so mad at Stephen, they decided to stone him to death. And as he was being stoned to death, we're told in Acts 7 that a young man named Saul actually held on to the coats of the ones who were stoning Stephen and he gave approval to his death. That's who we're talking about. Saul didn't know that what he was doing was wrong. He thought that what he was doing was right. He was ignorant. He was lost in his sin. He said in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would write these words. Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead. When you were dead in your sin, you didn't know. Y'all, can I just tell you, we live in a world where culture, people are living in such a way, they don't know the gospel yet. They don't know Jesus. They're looking to us for those answers. Right? We have to be the one to deliver the good news. And you can't deliver good news with a frown on your face, right? It's good news because there's hope for the one that's lost. You can be brought into the family. You can be forgiven. You're not too far gone. That's the good news that we celebrate. God, in his love for Saul, went after Saul. And this is what happens, y'all. He, I want to paint a picture. Here's a man who got permission to go into the synagogues. What does that mean? He wanted to go into Damascus. He got word, hey, in Damascus, the church is growing. In Damascus, there's a lot of people that are starting to follow Jesus, and I need to shut it down. And so he says, I need permission. I'm asking for permission to go into the synagogues, because I would go in, what Paul would do would go into the synagogues, and he would find those who were talking about Jesus, literally arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, and be, and be murdered, be killed. And so he says, I need letters to go to the synagogues, and he's on his way to Damascus with his letters, most probably riding a horse, and... When he's going, we're told that he encounters Jesus. The verses are right here. It says, meanwhile, while he was uttering all this, as he was approaching Damascus on mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God decides the way that I'm going to get Saul's attention is I'm going to flash a light brighter than the sun, Blind this man and knock him off of his high horse. Y'all know God can work in whatever way that he wants, right? He knocks this man off his high horse. And then he calls him by name. Right? If you don't think God's pursuit of you is individualistic, you've missed out. God knows your name and he's coming after you. And he wants you to know him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And for the one who's in the room right now and you've ever felt a sense of persecution... Which I thought about this, you know, uh, there's missionaries right now. Like as we stand, and I'm preaching right now, we're gathered in church right now. We don't have certain risks that other people around the world do. No one's threatening to come through these doors and lock us up and take us away. Right? That, that's not a, we don't live with that threat. We don't live with that risk. No one's coming through these doors threatening to take our lives. We, we've not experienced that level of persecution. But what I will say is that persecution in your life may look like actually standing for some convictions and being mocked or left out, or made fun of, right? Young people, when you stand on the convictions of your faith, it's easy to get pushed away. You know, so you, you tend not to stand on those convictions. That might be considered persecution. Or you get left out of certain gatherings or events, right, because of what you stand for or who you try to model in the way that you live. When you are persecuted, I want you to know Jesus takes it personal. When his, when his body, when the body of Christ faces persecution, he takes that personal. And he looks at Saul and he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, well, Lord, who are you? Who are you? He says, well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And everything changes in this moment. Here's why. 
Because if Jesus is alive and Jesus is speaking to Saul, then it's an offense to everything that Saul's given his life to. Think about it. Like if Jesus is alive in this moment and he's talking to Saul, then Saul has to realize, okay, then Jesus, who died on the cross, is now alive. And if he's alive, everything's changed. Amen? And then that's what Saul comes face to face with. Right? And, and the hope would be in this moment, he pops up and, yeah, I want to get baptized, give my life to Jesus. Well, guess what? His story didn't end that way. Like, Jesus says back to him, get up. Look what he says. I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So now everybody was Saul speechless and we're told that he's blind and he wanders into the city being uh, his hands being held by the guys that he's walking with. Here's a man who at one point is on a high horse, persecuting the church, coming against Jesus. And in an instant, he's humbled. He's knocked off his high horse and he can't see anything. You know, God has a way of humbling people. He has a way of letting you hit a rock bottom, coming face to face with a crisis, something that you actually can't fix. This is a man who was wealthy, well-versed, educated, well-spoken, well-traveled. He's got it all, y'all, but in this moment, he gets humbled and knocked down off his high horse because he comes face to face with Jesus. Quick question, what horse are you riding on? What's, What's your high horse? For some, it's intellect, right? Like the more scripture that I know, then maybe I'm smarter than, and intellectually, we can somehow elevate ourselves, or maybe financially, right? You're like, hey, I, I got it made in this world. I don't really have any needs, right? Like that, that's your high horse. Maybe it's just pride. You got to be right all the time. If you actually encounter Jesus, it may be me giving up something or forgiving someone, right? Or, or giving up some selfishness. We, we all, at some point in our lives, ride this high horse before Christ, But when we meet Jesus face to face, he knocks us off our high horse, right? And we're stuck in a place where I don't really know what to do. For Saul right here, he's in a dilemma because he's been preaching this law that says, if you have a physical condition such as blindness, then you have a spiritual condition that excludes you from God. And now here Saul is, his own legalism is now eating him alive. He's carried into Damascus and we're told he has to sit for three days with his like crew, they don't know what to do. They know they just saw something crazy happen. They know this man that's been their leader is now humbled and humiliated. What do we do? And he's sitting in this room and he can't fix his condition physically. And y'all, his physical condition is just an outside indicator of his internal spiritual condition. He can't fix himself. Meanwhile, now check this out. This is what I love about this story. Meanwhile, verse 10 God's working behind the scenes on another man named Ananias, right? The title of this message is a man on a mission. There's really two men on this mission. We got Saul to Paul, and then we got Ananias over here. And honestly, I love the story of Ananias right here because we don't really talk about Ananias much, right? Ananias didn't write any of the New Testament. Ananias didn't plant a church. We don't find him preaching a sermon. But look what God did in Ananias' life, right? Saul stuck in a room in Damascus just waiting, verse 10. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. 
I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Ananias exclaimed, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul. Can we just stop for a minute? Because what we have, Ananias is like a faithful Christian dude. And he woke up one day and he's doing his quiet time, you know, woke up. Hey, I'm going I'm to I'm read, you know, some scripture and I'm going to pray. And one of these days, you know, he wakes up and keep in mind the church is persecuted. They're scattered. They're all over the place. He's in Damascus. He's one of these believers in Damascus where the church is growing and they're sharing the gospel. Wakes up one day and he's in his quiet time and God speaks to him. The spirit speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to go over to Straight Street, the house of Judas, and find a man named Saul of Tarsus and pray with him. Ananias is like, uh-huh. Lord, I've heard about this guy, and I'm not going. <laughs> I'm not going to candy coat it straight up. I'm not, like, that's the one that's been killing all the Christians uh, in Jerusalem. I'm not going over there to pray with Saul. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you felt the Lord speaking to you, maybe urging you to speak with somebody or invite somebody to church, maybe share the gospel with a friend or coworker. But it's very easy sometimes when there's a threat of activity, like if you actually follow through with that, that there may be some kind of repercussion. For Ananias, he thought, if I go over there and I find Saul, I'm going to die. That was literally what he was thinking. Now, you've probably never felt that way. But that was the persecution that he was facing. So he says to God, I'm not going. And I, I actually respect that a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, wow, that's, that makes it very real. For instance, like if you were writing the Bible, let's say Luke, so Luke wrote the book of Acts, okay? Like, this doesn't make it look very appealing for Ananias that he's like, no, God, I'm not going to go. But Ananias at some point had to admit that's what his response was to God, right? And he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going. And then God responds back to Ananias and says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings and to the people of Israel. What God says, and if you got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to maybe underline or circle, or highlight that, that phrase, chosen instrument. If you ever go back and read Acts 9, whether it's a year from now or five years from now, this is what I want you to remember. He said, Saul is my chosen instrument. Another way to read that, Saul is my tool to take the word, to take the gospel, to kings, to Gentiles, to the people of Israel. What's God saying right here? Saul had access to places that the other disciples didn't have access to based on his background, right? So keep in mind, Saul, uh, was, he was a Hellenistic Jew. That's different from Hellion. Some of y'all are like, I'm in that camp. Nope. Hellenistic Jew, here's what it means, okay? Hellenistic Jew means this was a Jewish, uh, part of the Jewish culture that actually integrated with the Greek culture of their day. So the background in the arts, the background in theater, the background in sport, the background in education even, like some Jews would stay isolated, Hellenistic Jews actually infiltrated. And so Paul would have been 
very well-traveled, well-versed, well-spoken, right? He would know how to, to address people from a different culture. It wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was intimidating for Paul to be able to walk into, say, a theater in Rome and begin speaking, whereas for a lot of disciples that were Jews, they would have been intimidated by that. They would have never been exposed to that. Paul probably grew up going to plays, going to theater, sitting in the gladiator arena, right? So Paul has seen some stuff in his life that the other apostles and disciples hadn't seen. He was also incredibly smart. Like intellectually, he was raised under Gamaliel. What that meant was he could go into the synagogues and go toe-to-toe scripture with anybody and wasn't intimidated by it. He had credentials. We actually see him in Philippians. He actually falls back on his credentials. He says, look, I'm a Jew of Jew. Like I was a Pharisee. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was trained under Gamaliel. Like I, I got the stuff to be able to sit here and tell you And when he shares the gospel, it came with a certain sense of credibility that some people didn't have. God says, that's my chosen instrument. That's my tool, and he's going to do some things y'all can't do. Paul would later write in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God so no man can boast. And we've been saved and created. There's been works been created in advance for us to carry out. What does that mean? That if you are in this room or listening online, and you know Jesus, you got stuff to do. There's works for you to carry out. There's, you're a chosen instrument. You are, you are in a place that I'm not and that others aren't to actually bring the good news to that place, to share the gospel in that place, right? I told the earlier service, this is pretty cool. I said, hey, there's an engineer at Boeing right now that works in a department at Boeing over there by Tanger, and you're in a place to share the gospel that I can't go. I don't have clearance. I had a guy after the first service walk up and say, that was me. That was me. And I need to, and I need to let God use me in that workplace to share the gospel. You know that you're in a class I'm not in. You're on a sports team I'm not in. You're in a neighborhood I'm not in, right? You are uniquely placed with the background that you have to reach the people that others can't reach. You're a tool in God's hands. Now, here's one of the things I love about my dad. I didn't grow up very handy, but y'all, I'm real handy now. And, and, and I've learned through the years... There's been many projects that uh, I've called and, hey, uh, you know, I'm putting in a sprinkler system. Can you come help me put in a sprinkler system? Yep, I'll come this weekend. This is when I lived away, uh, lived in another town, other area. Hey, I'm, I'm building a wall. Can you help me build a wall? Yep, I'll be up there. We'll help you build a wall, put in a fence, whatever it might be. And one of the things that I love about what my dad brought to the table, um, he's a good worker. He's a hard worker. Be honest, I can work circles around you. I see you up there in the risers right now. I can work harder than you. You know it. But here, here's what... Here's what he brings to the table. Put your hand up real quick. I want to honor real quick, man. I love you. Love you. Happy Father's Day. That man's got every tool imaginable. That's the value he brings to the table, right? I learned this. Hey, you, if, you, if you want to nail a nail into the wall, you don't use a drill. Amen? And if you want to screw a drill or screw a, yeah, screw a drill into the wall, go try that today. If you, want to, if you want to drill a screw into the wall, you don't use a hammer, right? And it ain't going to end well. You're going to bust concrete. You're going to bust up drywall. It's going to be terrible. Uh, you got to have the right tools. Certain saws are used to cut, cut certain materials, right? You don't want to use a, you know, a skill saw if you're trying to cut tile. You need a tile saw. And some of you are like, yeah, duh, this is, this is normal, right? Here's the deal. Tools in a garage, they're meant to be used, right? Some of y'all gave your husband a tool last year on Father's Day, and he hadn't opened it or used it. You don't need a new husband. You just need to teach him how to use the tool. Amen? Get him some mentors. 
You know what, what, what's funny? I, I, I can't say his name because he might watch this message, but um, I had a friend, neighbor one time that had all these tools in the garage. And I, and I always felt, I felt ashamed. He would open his garage and the floor was painted nice and neat and, and all, the, all the, the toolboxes were back there, polished up, chrome, you know, just so pretty. And this, I need to borrow a tool, I can go in there and I get it. But it was just, I never saw him build anything. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he accumulated all the tools and it was all in the garage, but never really saw anything like constructed. And I look at mine, I'm like, all right, my drill, I don't know where my drill bits are. I got paint on my hammer, you know, my saw. Here's the thing. Listen to me. Listen to me. You can have all the tools in the workshop, but if you're not building something, the tools aren't actually being utilized for their purpose. Can I talk to the church real quick? We can have churches with polished up tools that aren't being utilized at all. I want, I want us to be used where we got a little grease on our elbow. Amen. You, you got a connection with some people and you're like, hey, look, I don't, uh, this might risk my reputation hanging out with this person a little bit. That's okay. That's okay. Get a little dirty. Because what you don't want to do is be all polished up and know all of this, but actually make no impact on the kingdom of God. Right? And that, Paul says, look, right here, God says, I have got him as a chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings. Y'all know where he went after this? Like after Paul gives his life to Jesus, he goes into some hard places. He goes into cities, y'all. He is poured out for the gospel. The man goes to prison. I say he's a man's man because he'd go into one city, get beat half to death. They leave him for dead, drag him out of the city, wakes up the next day. You know what he does? Ah, he got work to do. He goes back. It's amazing. Paul's life, he was a tool that was used. And when he was done, when it came down to the wire, y'all, he says, look, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Man, let's be a church like that. Let's actually be used for something, man. Build something together. Amen? Let's make some disciples together. That's what we're called to be. Let's get back to Ananias. Verse 10, God speaks to Ananias. He says, Ananias, go to Straight Street, go to the house of Judas. And when you get there, Ask for a man named Saul. And what I love about this, guys, is that Ananias was obedient to do the little thing that led to the bigger thing. I think so often it's easy to glamorize the one in lights or glamorize who planted a church or glamorize who wrote the book or glamorize who's speaking at the conference or glamorize the small group leader. And what I want us to see is Ananias didn't do any of that stuff. In fact, we don't really hear anything else more about Ananias after this, but you know what Ananias did? He woke up and Ananias made a decision. All right, I'm going to do what God just told me to do. And he goes over to this house and he knocks on, scared to death, by the way. Saul here. Yep. Come on in. Now, this wasn't easy. He was scared. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. And he walks in and he sees a man. Now, scholars, most scholars will tell us that Paul was not of large stature. In fact, he was a smaller man. But he's sitting in a chair. He's powerful. He's been known as evil. He's been the biggest threat to the church. But he's sitting there and the, and the Bible tells us he had something like scales over his eyes. And he's been praying, waiting for Ananias to show up. You know, it's possible there's people in your life right now that may be asking the question, I wonder when they're going to ask me about church. I wonder if they'll ever mention Jesus to me. I know they go on Sundays. 
I've heard the worship music maybe in their cubicle. I think they're different. Y'all know God works behind the scenes in places and ways that you can't see too. He's, he's sitting there waiting on Ananias and Ananias shows up and I imagine that Saul's kind of like, hey, I've been waiting on you. It's about time you made it. And he puts his hands on Saul and look at what he says in his prayer. It's amazing. Brother Saul, which can we stop right there for a minute? He calls him family. God has told Ananias, hey, I've already chosen this man to take my gospel out. He's waiting on you to come pray with him. That is all Ananias needed to help him understand. This is my brother in Christ. Saul has nothing to prove. I don't need him to show up to church. I don't need him to be a Christian for six months before I acknowledge his faith is real. He's got no fruit to prove to me. All I need is God saying, this man's saved. He's part of the family of God. Amen? Nobody has to prove anything to us. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and he was what? Baptized. And then afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. Basically Ananias says, hey, get up because we're taking the next step in this journey. Now that you know who Jesus is, the next step we got to get you baptized. And they walk outside the house, and I imagine the entourage follows suit, and they find some water somewhere in Damascus. They baptize, Ananias baptizes this dude, and they say, hey, let's go have a meal together. And y'all, I believe that was probably one of the most interesting conversations ever. Right? Like, serve up the meat, and it's like, so what'd you do last week? Well, probably shouldn't talk about that, you know? Paul's, Paul's story was so different from Ananias' story. The only similarity was Jesus. That's who brought them together. And you know what? I have to believe with all my heart that Ananias sitting at that table along with the other disciples that would join in the days that followed, I have to believe that Ananias looked at at now Paul and said, hey, all that stuff, just leave that behind, man. Just leave it all behind. Because Paul would later write, hey, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old's gone, the new has come. How would we know that? He was told that by the apostles, guys like Ananias, guys like James, guys like Peter. He was taught everything in your past does not belong in your future, but God will use it for your future if you'll just give it to him. That's what he does with us, and he's still doing that to this day. Amen? Would you close your eyes, bow your heads, nobody looking around right now. I want to ask a a simple question. You heard me, heard it referenced in the video, and that's this. I told you earlier that uh, the experience that Saul went through, the experience was he encountered Jesus. And Jesus is really the reason that his legacy shifted. The Bible tells us that uh, if we confess our sins and we repent of our sins, it means that we change the way that we think, change the way that we live. It's a 180, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What that means Dad, husband, listening today, no matter what you've brought into this room, no matter where you've come from, when you encounter Jesus face to face, he removes all of whatever it is. And he gives you a new life and a new start and a fresh beginning. He's a God of second chances. If you're here today and you say, I need that. I need a new beginning. I need a new start. I need a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to give your life to Jesus now. Bible says today's the day of salvation. 
You may have come in today not expecting to make that decision, but now you know that you need to. If today you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. Nobody's looking around where the privacy of this moment, the intimacy of this moment, it's a decision between you and the Lord. You say, I want to start following Jesus today. Lift your hand on three. One, two, three. Just lift it up as high as you can. Amen. I see you. Men and women in the room, I see you. Lift them up. Keep them up. I want to pray for you. Amen. I see you. I see you in the room. Let's applaud that. Amen. We can celebrate decisions. Amen. Amen. God, right now, you see these hands that have shot up. Outward reflection of decisions made on the inside that they want to follow you and give their life to you. So God, I pray that the next step would be baptism, that they would step out and be baptized and be discipled and begin to grow in their faith through the relationships of this church. Father, thank you for their obedience right now. I pray this encounter will change their legacy forever. God, we thank you that you're still calling people to yourself, that you still love us so much that you never stop coming after us. We praise you for these decisions. Now everybody look at me real quick. I want to close with this. All the way up in the risers. One of the things I love the most about that story is this. Verse 10 says that there was a believer named Ananias in Damascus. Another word for believer in the Greek is disciple. There was a disciple named Ananias in Damascus that God chose to use to lead this man Saul to Christ. I wonder what would happen if there was just a believer named Kevin in Charleston that God chose to use to go to somebody. If there was a believer named Chris in Somerville, if there was a believer named Emily in Ladson, if there was a believer named Tiffany in North Charleston, if there was a believer named Jeremy in Somerville, I wonder what would happen if we just said, hey, I want to be a believer that's faithful to do whatever God tells me to do. Is there anybody here that would say, that's what I want to be, just faithful? Would you just stand up right now? You say, put your name in the blank. I want to be a believer who's faithful to do whatever God tells me to do. Y'all, God will use us if we do that. He'll use us to change the world. Amen.